I'm so glad you've all joined us for the next episode of Score, the podcast. This one's a great one for me, personally, because I get to learn from one of the pioneers of video game music, Austin Wintery. And Austin has a couple exciting things coming up in Ghent, Belgium, that we're going to talk about on October 19th, 20th, and 21st. This fall, Austin is participating in the World Soundtrack Awards at Film Fest Ghent, where he's both curating a orchestral concert with Dirk Brasse and the Philharmonic of Brussels, uh, which will be all video game music, including some of his great stellar scores. And then on Saturday night, um, there will be this competition of the three young finalists for composing the music for one of Austin's most famous games called Abzu. They were asked to write a competitive piece of music that will be chosen and performed that night. So Austin is a wealth of information about video games, both their history and the musical aspects of video, and I'm excited to talk to him. So stick around. Austin Wintory coming up next on Score the Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, we have Austin Wintory. Is that how you like it said? That's perfectly fine by me. Uh, and thanks I so much for, for inviting me back. Yeah, it, I mean, it's the second time. I just reviewed the first time... I don't know. I I must have been rearranging my sock drawer that first time. I don't know why I wasn't part of the incredible Matt and Kenny conversation, but I listened to it about a week ago and thought, man, it's so uh, rich. Oh, it was so much fun. I, I, you know, as somebody who grew up reading countless interviews like this and, and you know, I was one of those early adopters of the Lucas Kendall newsletter you know and and oh, that's um, funny i uh i it's fun to to kind of hang with folks that that are you know nerds for this stuff that know the the canon as it were and so you obviously yourself so interwoven with the history of that canon and so many great scores and it's a no i, I love it it's a real it's a pleasure and a privilege i can't deny that listening to your uh stories of who your heroes were and how you never met them i wanted to jump in while i was listening to say <laughs> i actually did one score with jerry goldsmith and I, I would have assumed it was more than one i'm, I'm actually uh which which was it it was the end, near the end and um it was one of his last it was called it started out with a different title but it ended up being called the edge i believe it was oh great score Anthony Hopkins and Alec Baldwin. Uh, Alec Baldwin and a supermodel um, get <laughs> yeah, Al <know>, McPherson, <laughs> right? And their plane lands in Alaska. Um, and I can simply share this, but then I want to talk to you about so many interesting things. I'm kind of chomping at the bit. I've been curious, but Jerry taught me among. First of all, I got to go to his studio and watch him right because he was hey man yeah just come on over i gotta figure this shit out and wow he let people in the room while he, he was actually me, writing you know i don't know if he let everybody in but i would sort of invent an excuse to i gotta hear a couple cues they're curious about this scene or something and so i'd come over to his house and go upstairs and listen to stuff and he'd kind of tootle around and i think i am in the hall of the mountain king here yeah. i mean it was right but at one point he said something that i just live by and want to always remember him with the movie the edge was pretty lame oh i don't lame. actually agree with that but that's so nice it's so nice i think my point of view is from the studio point of view where there was so much fighting about what was happening. They were arguing in executive meetings about whether Alec Baldwin should shave his beard or not because that 
they were hoping would improve the movie before day one of shooting. And of course, he refused. But <laughs> I said, I said to Jerry at one point, um, you know, what do you do with a movie that isn't working? And he said, the cosmic Yoda response. You score the movie you want it to be. <laughs> yeah. And I thought, it's aspirational being a film composer. Composer, You're scoring the beautiful version of this movie, not what they have on screen, because you want it to be as good as possible. And uh, I just love that. And I think, okay, great advice for young composers who get kind of problematic movies. Austin. Your... Uh, your um your namesake cousin, Richard Kraft, once said a very similar sentiment, which was that he said Jerry always scored the movie that it was what was in the producer's mind of what they thought they were making. Oh, uh, that's perfect. And, you know, that's like the, the, the inevitable Oscar winner for Best Picture that they had the delusions of grandeur about. Jerry gave them the score fitting that film, whether it was the one in reality or not. And I always loved that. It's the same sentiment of, you exactly know. Exactly the same. And, and there's a professionalism to that that I love where, you know, composers, I was just explaining to someone the other day that the composer community has tended to hold Williams and Goldsmith up as the two kind of colossal figures where the public knows Williams, but composers see Goldsmith as kind of the composer's composer. Or he's, he's sort of the, 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 the leader of our little kind of private tribe in a way because of just his endless inventiveness and his constant... You know, his eclecticism and versatility with handling every seeming possible type of film and inventing a few genres himself along the way. And and um, but I love that that Goldsmith also represented just a a real kind of workman professionalism where he didn't phone it in, quote unquote, on account of the movie not being Patton or Planet of the Apes or Alien or any of the other actual classics that he scored. He treated them all as if they were, and I think there's something we all benefit from with that as an example, you know, because we can't, you can't pick, not every film or game or anything that comes your way is going to be some classic, and you have no power to make it that, so, you know, but don't phone it in, that <laughs> doesn't give you the right. It's to... just so critical what you're saying, and um, it's my favorite thing to witness in a conversation that I'm privileged to be in, which is the director and the composer talking, and I'm sitting there privately thinking, man, how are you going to score this scene? It's not funny. It's not cool. The girl isn't the right casting for this. And when the composer says, I totally understand, man, and let me see what I can do, and is upbeat, I always want to say thank you so much <laughs> for being positive. That director is so panicked right now that to hear you be supportive and upbeat is just like medicine for the process. And I think it's one of the great, you said it, it's one of the great aspects of great professionalism for the composer to always be, hey man, I know what I can do with this, instead of, you know, yeah, we got a problem here. Who's not going to bum out when you hear that? So yeah. Oh no, it's it's a it's a time-honored truism that composers have to be kind of 50% composer and 50% therapist to their collaborators Whew. holding their hand and making them realize it's all going to be okay and and often the way I try to think of it is it's my goal to to make this part of the process which is a, a sliver of all the various departments, you know, a director on a game or film or TV show is overseeing many different departments and they're on any daily basis talking to sound, talking to music, talking to visual effects, talking to the casting department or editorial and et cetera. And I always think to myself, I can't, I can't make this not a dumpster fire for them, but I can at least make <laughs> it like a, a kind of um, safe harbor, make music the one part that they feel like oh. they can just go in and say, well, at least this part's under control, you know? And, and, and obviously sometimes that's harder to achieve than others. Uh, you know, sometimes we have our own problems and, and we're trying our best to not so much hide it from the director, but make them feel confident that it's being taken care of. Yeah, not uh, on their shoulders. It's an interesting yeah. facet that you said. We're talking more meta than the specifics of some of your projects, but it's really interesting because of the timing difference. 
and I wasn't going to and don't plan to get into, well, film versus video, because that's a universe <laughs> unto itself, ad nauseum. But I like the safe harbor analogy you said, and in film, it's very much a temporal one in this way. Mm. Often the director shows up at the composer's doorstep at the moment in the film that he is exhausted, <laughs> yeah. out of money, pissed off at the studio because they've treated him like, man, you can't have that and you can't do that, um, worried that his career is in the toilet, and he's just bummed out. He's literally dragging himself to the composer's front door and saying, I got one more thing to do, man. I got to now do the score. It's different in video games because it's not at the end. So um, it's an, the safe harbor really applies in filmmaking. So much so that you want the composer to be this kind of embrace. I got you, man. Do you it, feel that that's, is there a similarity somehow in the process of a video game scoring? Yeah, I think, I think that um, even though we tend to be involved longer and from essentially the start, or at least statistically that's more likely than not, it's every, it runs the gamut. I've certainly come in at the last minute on games before, just like in films. And there's also cases of somebody being fired and needing a last minute replacement and the typical scenarios that might lead to a last second job. But, but generally speaking, whereas I might be on a film for a month or two or three, it tends to be in games a year or two or three. In the case of hmm. Stray Gods, it was five, but um, that musicals always are atypical anyway. But but so, yeah, I, I would say that even despite the longevity of it, uh, a lot of it can still really apply because games and film and all creative work, media or otherwise, painting, you know, being a playwright, whatever you name, name it, uh, is often this dance of constant compromise as reality asserts itself. And you go, oh, you know, I, I was imagining this painting uh, to be on a, on a 30-foot canvas but i but i physically can't get one in the door so i guess i'm going to have to scale it down it doesn't it doesn't matter what we're talking about there's always those little challenges right and so games that might happen in a slower motion uh than film you know your 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 challenges kind of emerge gradually and and there's advantages and disadvantages to that but you so you might see them coming a little bit more but it's still very much a you know oh well it turns out we aren't going to have the hardware support that we thought we were going to have, or oh, we thought that um, hmm. you know the 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 pro. I mean, I've just had this recently on a on a project where we'd been kind of tentatively planning on a certain kind of musical behavior uh, on account of the, the like the, the way it's interactively designed, assuming several things that the programmers would be able to provide us. And as we've gotten deeper into the project, uh, they're so busy putting out fires with the core code base of the game and just getting more central aspects of its engineering up and running things that if it if they don't the game literally won't run you click the icon on your computer and it just won't open so these are obviously higher priority tasks well because the programmers are so tied up with that we've had to go and say all right we're not going to be able to get certain behaviors that we were counting on for the last six months to to work so what are alternatives within the existing framework that we can that we can do. So it's still, there's still fires being put out and I still, hopefully the directors as they fight those various feel like, well, the music is, is under control. And even as they have to kind of jump through those, those hoops, uh, it'll turn out fine one way or the other. And, and hopefully they, they have that feeling. I That's certainly the aspiration. That, um, this may be the podcast episode with the most quotes, but you remind me of Duke Ellington. We've gone from Jerry Goldsmith to Duke Ellington who would oh, say every every problem is an opportunity. And so when 100%. those things in all movies I mean my favorite is, you know, the thirty million dollar over budget movie where they say to the director, You're not gonna blow up the bridge in two weeks, man. We just can't afford <laughs> it. And you see the final movie and no one knows that that one line of dialogue, wow, you mean that bridge was blown up? you know, is the cheap version of how to not spend a week constructing a bridge and blowing it up. You just have a dude say, huh, that's funny. I didn't realize. Um, oh, can there's we talk so about many Stray great Gods? examples of that. I, I oh, yeah. Actually, I, sure. That, I, I could easily go down that, 
that rabbit hole of you know film trivia and and all those times when when opportunity uh, was sort of you know uh, gleaned from challenges or things going wrong or things being objectively sabotaged from <laughs> the from the initial intent and then twisting it into I mean as a quick aside I just think one of the best ever examples of of making something iconic out of a thing that was absolutely a last second how do we just solve this is the is the iconic uh Indiana Jones shooting the the kind of wild swordsman in Raiders of the Lost Ark which was originally planned as this elaborately choreographed fight scene but he was <laughs> Harrison Ford had like dysentery or something from from being on set and 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 was not was not uh, doing very well and couldn't really shoot for long stretches and that's just one of those classic moments where you go it's so indie for him to do that and to have that look on his face like oh this shit uh, and just that kind of <laughs> literally uh, yeah right yeah and uh, I just I don't know I've always I've always I've always loved that I mean there's just so many in musical terms probably one of the best recently was was um, John Powell kind of redefined the the thriller action genre with the born identity and, and always talked about how because he was coming in as a last minute replacement, they'd blown the budget. Uh, uh, he had to figure out a score that could be done on the cheap. So it's like, well, how about strings and one bassoon? And, um, and you end up with this score that completely redefined action films really from thereafter, but for at least a decade. I'm so glad you mentioned it. It's one of my favorite scores ever. Not only that cue where Matt Damon's lying face down in the water, as long as we're going to oh, yeah. geek out on film music, but the kind of the action. You know, it's, I think I just sang some Han Henry Mancini by accident on my channel, <laughs> Mancini. But uh, I think Born Identity is not given the credit it should be for defining a whole new universe and leap forward um and oh, i thought yeah. you were going to talk about for some reason chinatown where he just dragged pianos and a trumpet and all that because he had two weeks or whatever the yep equally great today. example though i mean to we're, me that boy both, we uh, if podcast fans and score fans you're getting some <laughs> deep this is like uh you know you're trying to remain sort of general audience but we're going we're going deep here i want to talk about stray gods because i'm fascinated and i i think impressed beyond impressed i don't know what exactly that word is in the english language but it's not only musically adventurous in a new way um i think everyone needs to know that Austin is just there's a new game out that he's worked on called Stray Gods there's some really great quotes about how you kind of thought you know this has never been done and it hasn't uh where you get to pick your own musical adventure in some ways um which sounds kind of oh that would be kind of tricky I don't know if that would work it works unbelievably well which is the first thing I can't figure out is how in the world does this work so well? It's also <laughs> so high quality songwriting, which I really, you know, as a f songwriter and a fan of great songs, this is, as you said, this is Broadway. This is Broadway pop, really excellent stuff. And the fact that it's technologically so amazing you can go down so many routes with your songwriting. I'm just going to read you a couple quotes and then tell me a little about and tell sure. us. You, you said you always wanted to work on something. I'm going to read you three quotes of yours that I read, and I thought this is fabulous. You always wanted to work on something that put the music front and center. Okay, amen. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, no I one, guess that, no, that's not a controversial statement in this crowd. Right. No one's ever really done a video game musical the way I was picturing it, which we're going to leave behind the kind of music picturing music. I thought, that's an interesting way, the way I was picturing it. I thought it was interesting. <laughs> yeah. And you say... Dancing about architecture along the same lines. Right, place. a little bit. Um, here's a really great one. It would be that sort of water cooler conversation where two people have had such different experiences that they almost can't believe they played the same game. Can you talk a little bit about how that, you and I walk up to a water, actually not you and I, because we'd know. 
Mr. and Mrs. John and Jane Doe walk up to a water cooler and say, I just play Stray Gods. I love the punk shit that the guy's doing. Punk, she says. That was like the most beautiful kind of Disney musical. I don't know what you're talking about. How is that possible in the same game? So, um, yeah, it's hard to even know where to begin to kind of unpack that because it was a gradual process of testing and iteration and seeing how far we could go and then invariably as very apropos we were just talking about a minute ago realizing oh we could take this to kind of crazy extremes and then just having the realities the, pr the pragmatic and logistical realities uh, hold us back to a certain degree because it's one of those where you realize oh that we could kind of just infinitely add to the pile of content so that it, it starts to become just so sprawlingly massive that 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 you know thousands of people could play it and have almost no overlap in what they do uh, and so how we how we got there was uh, to kind of tell the the origin story a little bit of it uh, I have a friend who five years ago is a, he's a game developer and he pitched me or he proposed that I pitch him a game instead of he go and make a game and ask if oh, I nice. want to score it yeah, and and I think it was he was just curious what I would say. We had never worked together, but he has made some games. His name's Ken Wong, and he he had made a couple of games um, that I really admired, Monument Valley and Florence, both really beautiful games. And we'd been friends friends for several years. And he he just said, "We're going to be both be in San Francisco in a couple of weeks. Uh, let's get together for coffee, and I'd love to hear your game ideas." And I thought, "Oh well, I'm not going to miss this opportunity." So I showed up with a kind of list of projects I've been dreaming about because what he had, what he didn't even realize and what a lot of people don't realize is when I was a teenager I was so fascinated by video games um, in their kind of mid-90s state at that point that I I really f was at a crossroad debating if I wanted to pursue being a composer or go you know study programming and become a game designer and so I, I always had this passion for game design as its own kind of art form even though after taking a few programming classes, I thought, I think I'm better at music, and I think I like it more, honestly. So I kind of ditched that career ambition, but I, I did have this, you know, dark night fantasy, this, like, dark night of the soul kind of fantasy of, of um, you know, making and scoring my own games. It was kind of this, it was this thing that I thought, that would be, that would be incredible, but I, I'm all too happy to be scoring other people's games, uh, to be perfectly clear. Uh, and uh, but this seemed like a little chance to recapture some of that. Uh, on, on how many ideas glory. did you pitch him? I showed up with probably I don't know eight to ten sort of single uh, elevator pitch of you know imagine this or imagine that. And but the first one and the one I could kind of most clearly see was the idea of a musical. Um, and because yeah, the, uh, you mentioned earlier that it hadn't really been done. There have certainly been musical numbers in games for a long time. Um, often highly non-interactive. You know, in, in games, um, there's sort of... It's hard to generalize because games are so diverse in, in the way that they work and in the way that we play them and the way we interact with them. But in general terms, there's kind of interactive gameplay and then there's non-interactive interstitial bits that we would call cutscenes or cinematics, and that's a very common structural arranging of games. And the few times that there have been musical numbers, they have always been those interstitial bits. You play the game, and then your reward or the, the way that they download the story is there would be a song. Uh, and, and one, probably the most noteworthy example of that is a game called Epic Mickey that was made by Warren Spector. Uh, collaboration, obviously licensed with Disney. Um, and Jim Dooley, longtime friend of mine, uh, wrote the score and wrote the songs in this very Sherman Brothers-esque, old-school Disney way that I remember... As somebody, you know, I, when I first met him was 2005, and he had only recently graduated from being Hans's assistant and was was kind of making his way up. Had his own, he had his own room out he had, there. Yeah, he had his own room, and he, in fact, it was a very, very gracious thing that I had moved to L.A. one week earlier. I didn't know a single person, and he invited me down to what was then Media Ventures to um, to show me around, to give me a tour. He didn't know me from anyone. We just had a professor in common at NYU who connected us when he realized I was moving out to L.A., and... And um, he was just so generous and, and, and welcoming. And, uh, I, and I remember thinking, you know, I looked at his rig and it was very impressive. And I was still kind of 
building mine and new to a lot of that. And he, it struck me as Jim is very technologically savvy. So it was a, it blew my mind to see what an old soul songwriter he, he's capable of being and, and what mm. a great appreciation for classic kind of almost Tin Pan Alley style um, uh, great songwriters of the past he has. So anyway, that, that game Epic Mickey um, had these interstitial musical numbers as cutscenes, which were really well executed. But I remember going, yeah, but games are all about interactivity. I remember at the time even being frustrated, as much as I admired uh, Jim's songwriting uh, capabilities, which are top-notch, I thought, it's it's not a video game musical. It's a video game that has musical numbers. And I'm being a little pedantic in that differentiation, but I thought for it to be a video game musical, shouldn't the songs be part of the game, the gameplay, the actual interactivity. And that was the thing. There's only one other game that even comes close to that, which was called uh, Dominic Pomplemousse, which was this very, very uh, niche indie game that was all black and white, done with stop-motion animation by hand. The entire game was made by one person. Um, very, very um, uh, sort of fringy, but deeply impressive. But again, the musical numbers weren't interactive. It was more like they would play along and then you'd hit a juncture where it would kind of vamp in place and wait for you to move forward and then it would keep moving. And so it was, it was, it was very well executed in that. But I remember going, I don't feel like I'm actually controlling the music and that's what I want to try my hand at. So I, I thought, okay, that's the thing I want to do. And my buddy, Ken, goes, I think that sounds like something I want nothing to do with. <laughs> but but weirdly, I have a friend who's a game developer and a and a producer, and he's just started a video game company uh, with this fantasy of making a video game musical. And they're they've just formed the company, but don't really know what they're doing yet. And I should connect you to. And so he introduced me to this guy named Liam Essler, who had just founded this studio called Summerfall, and they had this ambition of making a musical, but they kind of hadn't they didn't really quite know what to how to start yet. And so I met them at the exact perfect moment. I mean, it's absolute one of those kind of kismet, just bits of unbelievable luck that we cross paths with this equal ambition. And and um, so that was five years ago uh, in San Francisco. It, it was it was actually very funny because I'm literally sitting there in San Francisco at, at the um, uh, you know Moscone Center Convention Center area downtown where this big conference was happening and. I get in touch with Liam. He says, I'm flying back home to Australia in one hour, so can you meet right now? So we rushed across town and met each other, had a quick coffee, and, you know, Stray Gods, which was at the moment, at that moment, they were tentatively calling it Idols, and then later Chorus, and then later Stray Gods, uh, was sort of uh, kicked off then and there, and here we are now. So that was that so, was sort so of the origin. I just want to find out, when you say here we are now, are we on the cusp in... August 2023, because we're dating this moment, of finding out whether Stray Gods is embraced by a large audience. Have we found that out yet? Um, because everything you're saying, absolutely fabulous and fascinating to me, and I'm curious whether a non-musician audience, not musical, just musicians, but people that love music and songs, will embrace this mashup of interactivity and music. Have we found that I, out yet? I mean, the game came out, as of when we're recording this, the game came out uh, five days ago. Uh, and okay. so I, my, my, if, if, to answer your question, if my social media is any indication, it's basically my Twitter and Instagram have been effectively nonstop just notifications of people uh, playing the game and, and reaching out and saying very very nice things and I mean uh, uh, so I don't Great. I, I don't have a scientific assessment but but certainly the thing that you tapped on in your question was so important uh, was this should not feel like you are you need any kind of musical ability whatsoever musicianship that's not the goal in fact we also abandoned the idea early on that the game would ask any traditional video game skill of you. It's it's like a, I've been describing it where I say you used, you know, you could buy those choose your own adventure novels that are maybe a hundred pages long and you read to page 25 and it says, if you want to open the door, go to page 70. And if you want to jump out the window, go to page 60. Well, it said, you know, uh, 
other than a few things, on a really basic conceptual level, what we've done with this game could be put down on paper and executed similarly. The difference being that that book would then be the length of a phone book because <laughs> it's, it's so much more content. And also, obviously, with the songs, the idea is we, we, we give the player these emotionally trait-based choices. It's not, are, are you being good or evil? It's more just, here's the situation. How do you react? Do you react in a kind of antagonistic way? Do you react in a kind of compassionate way? Or do you react in a kind of more cerebral way to, this, to the last 20 seconds of what you heard? And then based on what you choose, 20 or 30 seconds later, we say, okay, now what do you think? Based on what's happened as a result of your choice. And then another 20, 30 seconds after that, now what do you think? So behind each door are unique doors because this is storytelling. It's not like flashcards or Mad Libs or something. It has, to, it has to logically say, well, you yelled at this person and got in their face and they didn't like that. So they got right back in your face. But in a different song, that might have made someone cower in response. And your reaction to those reactions is going to be different. So we had to it's carry all fantastic. this through. The imagination that uh, and musical talent that, I mean, I've been watching some of the videos of guys playing it and texting and commenting. And, and I just, it blows my mind. And it, one of the things that blows my mind I keep coming back to is... The quality of the music is just exceptional. It's just beautifully written and and well, and I, I, I performed. I the, there's a girl singing one of the songs that it's like this is first class. This is an amateur night. This is the real deal. Well, I, yeah. So two different comments to make in response to that. First off, that's very kind of you. Uh, you know, I I'm fully aware that you are very much a songwriter in your own right and you've worked with you know so many folks of such pedigree and so i don't take it lightly for you to say such such kind words as someone who spends most of his time writing scores um and you know occasionally will write a song for an end credit you know as my sort of uh, aspirationally uh, hmm. uh wannabe james horner kind of thing um uh as yesterday would have been his 70th birthday um hmm. I, um, uh, I, I've always loved that. I've always loved the, the kind of song that leverages the score or vice versa. Uh, so I've done that a number of times and I've had occasion on a few, like I did a game called Assassin's Creed Syndicate where they needed a bunch of um, in-world diegetic songs as source that react to the narrative. So they were not interactive songs, but they appeared at specific points in the game based on what you had done and because they were in world and diegetic in a game that takes place in 1860s london we uh i it was the only time in my career where the deliverable was not audio the deliverable was sheet music because then we went into the studio with actors and recorded drunk versions and you know a woman busker on the street version and all this and they had to be populated throughout the the game's world as as in world source so i've always taken every opportunity to, to, to write songs, but a full-on musical like this was uh, something I, I felt quite a lot of imposter syndrome stepping into. So your kind words uh, mean a lot, and I can't, I can't uh, fail to recognize that I, I wrote these songs with collaborators who were uh, just dream partners. Uh, and, and so um, I, I kind of found myself co-writing the the songs and writing the score that had to stitch it all together, but acting in a kind of musical director position because in order to get it all done, I mean, there's over six hours of music. Uh, we had, to, I kind of had to silo off my collaborators a little bit. So there's this band from Australia called Tripod. That's these three guys named uh, Simon Hall, Stephen Gates and Scott Edgar. And so I would be writing one song with each of the three of them in parallel instead of them operating as a band three hmm. in one, as would normally be the case, because they've written just countless amazing songs. You go look them up on YouTube and whatnot. They are absolutely hilarious, brilliant comedian songwriters um, and, and major, major musical theater nerds. Um, <laughs> and so they... They would, I would come in and be writing one song with one of them and one song with another and one song with another. And, and even then, there was still so much material to do that we then brought in a fourth songwriter, this fabulous pop musician from Australia named Montaigne, who I, who I wrote another half a dozen or so uh, songs with. All the kind of romantic subplot songs uh, were Montaigne it and shows. myself. And, it shows because I'm listening um, through and it's just, as I said, you've just nailed it. And I, I hope this, at least this podcast introduces it to people another thing that could introduce it to people is if you talk about it a little bit when we get to belgium 
because I'm going to be there. <laughs> oh, great. I'm going to be there with you, and I actually am very excited about a couple things that are happening with the WSA. Just to let folks know, um, Austin is going to be curating. You might want to edit my my sort of summary here. A two things in October in the beautiful medieval city of Ghent, Belgium, where they have Film Fest Ghent every year. But Film Fest Ghent is legendary for a reason that some people don't realize. It hosts the World Soundtrack Awards, the final weekend of the film festival, and it's really the absolute top, the pinnacle of film music in the world uh, for a lot of different uh, composers and they get an award and the uh, Brussels Philharmonic plays scores it's a quite an exceptional event also for those of you who love film music the European audiences are just raging and these if I told you the stadiums are sold out I'm not it's not hyperbole they're just it's a huge thing there this year Austin on Thursday night October 19th, Austin, you're hosting a the first ever concert of video game music, if I'm not mistaken, playing your scores and others. And then I believe on Saturday night, there's going to be the winners, the three finalists of a competition to write film music by young composers. First of all, how did I do? And secondly, in our time remaining, can you talk about both those events at Ghent? Because I'll be in attendance at both. Very curious about the concert. Really curious about how do you pick three winners or one winner <laughs> of film music for Abzu? Is that a yeah? Oh well, yeah, it was it? It, Abzu. Yeah, it was uh, Abzu. Um, for the for, it was a game I had scored. Uh, well, one all. So regarding the concert, the. I attended the WSA for the first time a couple of years ago. They invited yeah. me out to do a panel as their first kind of toe in the water um, of the world of game music because I think they, they felt a little bit like this is opening a Pandora's box because it's an industry that's actually larger than the film industry <laughs> and we don't know much about the goings on. And I just Why don't we get the guy who's been nominated for a Grammy for film music is what they said. <laughs> Well, they they very graciously invited me to come out and and do the do one of the panels and 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 speak there, and I had an absolutely lovely time, you know, hanging with old friends, meeting new friends, um, and I, you know, I'd always kind of longingly seen the photos each year that would show up online from from the Ghent and from the concerts, and Dirk Brosset had conducted my music a few times in concert nice. over the years, and so he and I had a kind of um, pen pal type relationship. We hadn't met in person until we finally convened there in, in Ghent a few years ago. And so we, we hit it off and they reached out again a year ago, give or take, and said we'd like to kind of, you know, each year they sort of zone in uh, or zoom in on a particular specialization. You know, last, or uh, when I was there a couple years ago, beyond the fact that they were honoring, um, Max Richter and did a whole concert of his music. They also were honoring Greek composers, uh, many of whom uh, were probably largely uh, unfamiliar to you know Hollywood types or or, or more kind of uh, American composers. I certainly heard lots of music that I did wasn't familiar with that night. You know, it's, everybody knows Vangelis, but the list goes quite a bit from there. So that was wonderful. And in that same vein, they said we'd love to expose our audience to game music, but they they said we'll be real honest. We don't. Really Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details know the repertoire you know we can google things but would you be interested in helping to kind of curate it and i said uh, i said nothing would please me more because you know i i'm a gamer i play games i i'm friends with a lot of these composers that are are doing some of the the best work in games i have a lot of people who i admire you know one of my favorite uh uh quotes of all time from one composer to another was from that 
1993 uh, dinner honoring Jerry Goldsmith at which Mancini said, Jerry, you scare the hell out of the rest of us. Uh, and I always <laughs> thought that was the most beautiful way to um, to kind of uh, composer to composer pay tribute. And I thought there's a lot of composers that scare the hell out of me who who regularly for, sort of make me feel doubly or triply motivated to, to do my best work. And, and I would <laughs> love nothing more than to, to take their work and throw it up on on stage and so they basically gave me a bit of a blank canvas say well we have a we have a show you have an orchestra you've got maestro brosse um you know show us what you got and and one bit of incredible good fortune is that probably the biggest release of the year is this game called Baldur's Gate 3 it just came out uh, a week and change ago um and the studio uh is is Belgian and and in the huh. and the composer lives in Ghent uh, or at least he lives in. I'm pretty sure he lives just outside of Ghent. Uh, but they they are by a hilarious coincidence one of the single biggest. And I, so I remember emailing them and saying, "Well, my friend Bobby, uh, his name is Borislav Slavov. He's he's Bulgarian, uh, but he lives in Belgium, working for this studio called Larian." I said we'd be crazy not to feature his music, and then of course the game came out and just was this instant massive success and deservedly so. Baldur's Gate Three is one of the most impressive games from tech from a technology technological standpoint if nothing else i've ever seen i mean it's truly astounding but uh but in any case so yeah it's it's i think it's going to be a lovely concert i'm really honored i'm honored to have my own music on there from a variety of games um, including abzu which segueing from abzu then uh they said you know we always do a young composer competition and what if we featured one of your games and we'll just you know, strip out the music and show a clip. And of course the challenge with that, and, and again, credit to WSA for, for being so welcoming to my suggestions. What I said was, if you want to make this a young composer contest about video game music, don't just send them a clip because the clip is deceptive. It's not linear footage. What you're looking at is someone recorded a snippet of gameplay and my original score would play back differently if they had recorded that differently. And I said, so make it part of the contest entrance requirements that they have to just include a little paragraph describing how they would make it interactive. And so when we did our jurors convening to talk about which scores were most impressive to us, that was a big part of the discussion where I said, you know, what this person is pitching is actually eminently doable, which to me shows they know what they're doing when it comes to games. And that's a big winning point for me because there's a lot to consider that you don't have to consider with film about, well, what if the player does this instead of that? Or what if they do this five seconds later than you're expecting? How do we account for that? You can't ignore those questions scoring a game. And, and these young composers, so many of them really got it. It was really exciting. That's so great. And so I'm just curious. First of all, I can't wait. Secondly, who is, are you one of the judges? There are three judges, they said. Yeah, there was there was a, 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 a we we did a group call where we went through the entries and and uh, I I how many uh, entries? That's a good question. I I, I mean I can't ten remember. or a hundred. Oh, it was yeah, much closer to a hundred. I mean, there were there were quite a few, and and then we narrowed it down and then narrowed it down and narrowed it in. And the funny thing was, you know, we we all there was not a lot of arguing that it, sometimes I've been on juries for awards, like with ASCAP Composer Workshop. Uh, not, like I've been on the jury for the acceptance into the ASCAP scoring workshop and things like that in the past. And sometimes we get into big arguments because it's like, well, I think this person's brilliant. What? That one didn't speak to me at all. I think this one's really brilliant. But this one, I was actually amazed that that our lists were quite overlapping from the onset where we just thought, oh, this person really seemed to nail it. And so did this. And, and you know, a lot of this is still not yet public. So I'm playing my cards a bit close to my chest. But um, but it was a very impressive lot of young composers. There were none in there, none, even among the ones that didn't make the cut in the end. There were none that I thought, this person's really just not ready for, for prime time, as it were. They, they were, the bar for young composers is a lot higher than when I was a student. Because I can tell you, when I was 20 or whatever, my music was nowhere near on the level of those 20-year-olds that we were judging this year. I think you have just articulated the best description of how film music has changed in on the ground level which is when you were 20 how about when I was 20 and was curious about film music I went to a summer program at Berkeley College of Music where they offered the very first course in film scoring and the teacher who I loved was a jazz trumpet player who had played on some scores mm. and that was it wasn't like there was a devoted 
I've scored films. Right. And uh, they gave all of us or asked all of us to buy the Nudsen book, which was the a 750,000 pound book <laughs> of different click tempos to quarter notes and eighth notes. Needless to say, I had no clue what it was. It kind of blew me off film scoring because I thought, this is way too complicated. I just want to jam. I want to have, how do you do that? Um, Pink Panther stuff. That's what I want. Yeah. I want to be Henry Mancini. So the fact that there's a hundred applicants and their first quality means this has become an interesting option for young musicians. Needless to say, I love that. I can't wait to hear it. And I want to simply share that uh, when film music is good, I used to say, because I'd sit in these rooms with the filmmakers and it'd be wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong. And when it was right, I always noticed, as I used to say, the filmmaker's shoulders went down. Hmm. It was like, okay, that feels good. What's next? And they'd move on to the next cue. When it was wrong, everybody got tense and everybody said, I think there should be an oboe. No, it should be, it's like, it's, it's too slow. It's too fast, man. A thousand reasons why it was wrong when it was right. Yeah, that's good. But oh, can we go to the next cue? It was unbelievable how in the room when the music fi fits the picture or the story, there's a general consensus. I don't know how that works. But Austin, first of all, personally, I can't wait to not only hang in Belgium. Same. But also, you know, I'm of a generation that did not is not native to video games. Straight up, I'm not scared to admit it i know a lot about certain things and can tell you about what music was like when i was 10 years old listening to wabc radio under my pillow with a transistor radio and going crazy <laughs> about the beatles but i wasn't 10 years old playing super mario and that's a whole evolution for a generation of understanding this what I'm learning, particularly from you, is the beauty of these games and their music. So this is a to-be-continued conversation. We didn't touch on what it's like for me to try and play Journey, which I'd like to ask you about because <laughs> I can't uh. figure out, is something supposed to happen? How do I, why do I feel so lonely out there walking through the sand? Um, and can I, I know I'm supposed to meet other people how long until I do? These are these are Zen koans. Yeah. Because right now I'm just wandering around really isolated and digging it. But man, what a feeling I get emotionally from that game. It's whew, this is lonely. So well, that was very much the idea. Uh, yeah. No, I mean it, it's it's just to your to your point. One of those. Actually, Stray Gods shares very much in common something with Jeremy, Journey, which was our executive or our uh, the producer at the the developer for Journey, that game company named Kelly Santiago, uh, said something once when we were working on Journey that I always stuck with me, which was we we're trying to make this game for people that don't know yet that they love games, and Ooh. the idea was to reach a new audience where it, it for the longest time games were associated with arcades. You know, you if you were good, if you didn't need a lot of quarters, they were entirely skill based, and it was like an it was like a digital man, uh, extrapolation from sports. And then and then people started to experiment with well, what what about other things we could do with this? And you ended up with things like all the Lucas Arts, you know, the the video game branch of Lucasfilm, George Lucas's company, uh, formerly. Uh, in the 90s, you know, you had people like Ron Gilbert and Tim Schafer making these games where they said, well, what if it was more like just solving puzzles and having adventures with text and, and then later with voice actors? And, and so people very quickly started saying, what if it wasn't just an analog to sports in the digital domain, but it was about telling stories and it was about adventures and it could be about all kinds of things. But even within that, there was still a pretty narrow, they tended to be action, they tend to be the, the video game equivalent to going to see the latest Michael Bay film or something along those lines. And, 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 and that game company was part of a, a, a kind of changing consciousness in the world of, of game developers saying, you know, like Genova Chen, the, the creative director on Journey would always say, you know, I wanna make uh, 
mature content. And I don't mean mature because it's very violent. I actually mean mature in the way that if you played it at 30, after having played it first when you were 20, it would mean something totally different to you. Oh, you know, man. like like The Little Prince was the, was the example that he often brought up, or Shakespeare, where a high schooler reading Hamlet has a totally different relationship with Hamlet than a 50-year-old. And he said that's what games are sorely lacking, and that was the mission of that game company to try to bring to games. And the net result of that, beyond hopefully making just compelling games that people really like, is that people who initially thought, oh, I'm not interested in sports type games or antagonistic or skilled kind of games. I'm looking for something different. Now they could find that difference. And, and Stray Gods tumbles out of that, what that game company really started, and a few other developers as well, but that game company with Flow and Flower and Journey, uh, Stray Gods is falling out of that because Stray Gods requires no skill. It's not meant to be difficult. It's meant to just invite you to I actually liken it to improv theater where, of course, <laughs> it's not literally infinite the way improv is because we have to record actors and we have to create art and music and all these other things. But we try to make it as broad as possible so that you're invited to just kind of get lost in the moment and role play your reactions to things. It's not about are you good or how do you win or do you lose? Just how did it make you feel and what, what happened with that? And um, that's because the game industry has been actively for the last 15 years saying, how do we invite new people in uh, to, to, so that they don't feel alienated by the medium or they don't feel like, oh, these are too hard for me or, or I don't get it. You know, it's like there are games out there about parenthood that a 20 year old would fundamentally not get. You know, that game I mentioned, Florence by Ken Wong, is a mobile game about going through breakups. It's n there's no skill involved. It's a game that taps into something really potent. So anyway, it's I could so go great. on that tirade it, forever. <laughs> it's, but it's you're actually you're articulating the fact that we're at a an inflection point with games, and I think that the World Soundtrack Awards concert is kind of an indication of what is happening around us, around the new audience who has discounted games, um, and thought it's not for me. It's for gamers who are you know teenagers, and uh, they just. Uh, zone out playing these games well, hey come on in to dinner I can't I'm in you know level 12 and I can't move um, it's a, you're, what you're expressing is really interesting and kind of wonderful to just have this conversation today because I think we're for a certain audience this is the beginning for another audience oh, we're already there but I love the fact that we're getting a chance to have this conversation now and I'm looking forward to again I'm inviting everyone who hears this if you have some spare time the weekend of August, I'm sorry, of October 19, 2021, come here, Austin, in Ghent, Belgium. We'll find you a seat. Austin, thank you so much. As I said, tip of the iceberg. Uh, I'm going to try and figure Journey out in the interim. Maybe I'll have <laughs> some. Maybe I'll know where I am on that big desert by the time I see you in October. But deep appreciation. Oh, thank you. And admiration. And I'll see you in Belgium. Well, right back if at you, and thank if you. If it's Tuesday, it must be Belgium. I think that's the old expression. So <laughs> on those tours, we'll see you in Belgium. Thank you, you so then. much. Peace.